This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Ayana Young, and I welcome you to Unlearn and Rewild, where we explore radical ideas relating to earth renewal. Today we will take an in-depth look at the Tongass National Forest in southeast Alaska, which has been called the crown jewel of American forests. The largest of U.S. national forests, it consists of one-third of the world's coastal temperate rainforest ecosystem, which only occurs in 3% of Earth's landmass. The Tongass has already had nearly half of its very large old-growth trees cut down due to a process known as high-grading, where loggers remove the oldest and largest trees from the forest. These trees are often essential to the ecosystem, simply because they are so large and provide vital habitats for woodland creatures. Last month, an Alaska court approved further logging of this rare heritage old growth that has just begun and will continue for 10 years, unless we organize a strong pushback. Joining us today to fill us in about this top priority conservation issue is Tom Waldo, senior staff attorney with Earth Justice in Alaska. Tom graduated from Dartmouth College in 1981 and Stanford Law School in 1987. Tom clerked for Alaska Supreme Court Chief Justice J. Rabinowitz in 1987 to 88. From 1988 to 89, he worked for the Minnesota Attorney's General Office as counsel to Department of Public Service. In 1989, Tom moved back to Alaska to join the Earth Justice team. He develops and litigates a variety of cases in state and federal courts and administrative agencies to protect Alaska's public lands, wildlife, and air, and water quality. Cases in his docket have included protection of roadless areas and old-growth habitat in the Tongass and Chuga National Forest, prevention of illegal disposals of state public domain lands, and protection of water bodies from acid mine drainage and other mine-related water pollution. 
Hello, Tom. Welcome. Hello, Ayana, and thank you for having me. So, just to get started on the foundational level, what is Earth Justice, and what is your role in this incredible organization? Earth Justice is a national nonprofit environmental law firm. We represent clients around the country in lawsuits and administrative appeals and providing legal advice on uh, claims relating to protection of natural resources, basically protecting fish and wildlife, clean air, clean water, and healthy communities. Um, we have over 90 lawyers in 12 offices around the country and a caseload of about 300 cases with over a thousand clients. Uh, we represent our clients without charge on cases to protect the environment. My role is uh, I'm a staff attorney in the Alaska office and work on issues here in Alaska. Well, wonderful. And I know a crucial campaign you're working currently on is to protect the Tongass National Forest. But to give the audience a wider scope, perhaps you could start by explaining where the Tongass National Forest is and what makes it so unique geologically and ecologically. Sure. Um, the Tongass constitutes most of the panhandle of southeast Alaska. It's by far the biggest national forest in the country. It's 500 miles long, 100 miles wide. It's uh, about the size of the state, west, uh, the state of West Virginia. If you look at a map of Alaska and you see that panhandle down in the southeast corner, more than 80% of that land is, in, is, is the Tongass National Forest. So part of what makes it unique is its huge size. We're, we're way bigger than any other national forest. It's a very diverse place. It's a forest of islands. Uh, most of the forest is a chain of islands called the Alexander Archipelago along the coast of southeast Alaska. They are mountainous islands divided by ocean channels. And uh, we have a diversity of landscapes, including glaciers and ice fields, mountains, forests and salmon streams. It's a temperate rainforest, which is a relatively rare forest system worldwide. We have some, uh, a, really a substantial component of the remaining intact temperate rainforest in the world located right here in southeast Alaska. As its name suggests, we get lots and lots of rain here coming off the Pacific Ocean. It's a very wet forest. It supports an ecosystem that is teeming with life. We have huge trees. The, because it's so wet, we don't get forest fires. So the trees live for a very long time. There are no significant disease or insect issues or anything like that that kills the trees. So our trees live for hundreds and hundreds of years. And we get an ecosystem that, that has a diversity of trees of all different sizes that supports a diversity of wildlife, including a lot of species that are relatively rare in the lower 48 nowadays. So we have relatively abundant populations of brown bears and black bears, eagles, wolves, and salmon, very importantly salmon, all five species of Pacific salmon in great abundance. The salmon are part of that ecosystem because they come back and spawn in the streams that are nurtured in these old growth forests. Well, I have had the luck and honor of visiting the Tongass National Forest and it is heartbreakingly beautiful. 
and such an important place to protect. So thank you for your work. Now, I'd also like to go into the history of logging and resource extraction in the Tongass, perhaps shedding some light on the 1989 sale of old growth forests for pulp in Sitka. And also, maybe we could talk about the 2003 Bush administration temporary exemption from the nationwide roadless area conservation rule. Sure. Um, (laughs) History of logging in the Tongass. Well, it goes all the way back to the uh, 19th century, they, you know, as long as uh, people were here, they were cutting down trees at some level. In the earlier parts of the 20th century, you had small operations that basically just high-graded the most accessible and valuable trees they could get at, but at a relatively small scale and serving largely local needs. For decades, the Forest Service tried to entice a larger industry to come to the Tongass. And they recognized they had the problem that although these giant old growth trees contain some contain rich and valuable timber, there's also a lot of what they call defect. That is the wood that is not good for sawing into lumber. And so they need you need a paper mill or a pulp mill or something like that to make it uh, really an economically optimal operation. And it was a, because of our remote location and because of these remote islands that are difficult to get access to and the relatively scattered locations of the valuable trees, it was actually hard to establish a timber industry here. The way they finally did it was in the post-war years, they enticed two companies to build giant pulp mills in the Tongass, one in Sitka and one in Ketchikan. And the way they enticed them to do that was with 50-year timber sale contracts. These were unique in the national forest system. Uh, There's no other forest that has timber contracts that long. And it was by offering these mills this long-term supply at dirt cheap prices that they were able to attract these pulp mills. When those mills came, starting in the late 1950s, um, that's when industrial scale logging in the Tongass took off. And we saw uh, just an explosion of logging during that time. It peaked in the 1970s, cutting around five or 600 million board feet a year and has been on a decline ever since then. In the 1990s, those pulp mills that had been built in the post-war years had become obsolete. They were inefficient in the world markets and it was going to cost a great deal to upgrade them, to make them comply with requirements for clean air and clean water. And in addition, the pulp mills had cut over all of the very best and most valuable and most accessible old growth in the forest so that they didn't have as rich and valuable a source of resource anymore. So as a result, those mills closed in the 1990s, one in 1993, the other in 1997. And what we've seen since that time throughout the 2000s is a a level of logging back to about what it was before they built the pulp mills, around uh, 30, 35 million board feet a year in recent years. But what's being cut now is the remainder of what is now a, a significantly degraded ecosystem that's the result of 
nearly 50 years of logging under these long-term contracts that focused on the very best old growth stands in the Tongass. Wow, well just to imagine these magnificent old growth turning into pulp nonetheless is is really hard for me to believe. And would you also speak about the Bush administration's exemption from the nationwide roadless conservation rule and how that played a role in the logging and resource extraction? Sure, yes. When, um, as I mentioned, the, pulp, the last of the pulp mills closed in 1997, and it was right around that time that the Clinton administration began considering what became the roadless area conservation rule, which is a, a rule that was adopted at the, in, at the end of the Clinton administration, protecting roadless areas in the national forests from most logging and most road construction. Roadless areas are the places that, as the name suggests, they don't have roads. They're the places that still remain wild and pristine largely. In the Tongass, we have way more roadless areas than any other national forest, 9.6 million acres. And it was very controversial at that time whether the Tongass would be included in the roadless rule. And the reason for that was a lot of the logging in the Tongass was, most of the logging at that time was still being done by punching new roads into backcountry, wild, pristine areas and high grading out the very best old growth that was there. So the conservation movement nationally made a big effort to get the Tongass included in the roadless rule and that paid off at the end of the Clinton administration, the decision was made that the Tongass would be included. Well, the Bush administration that took office shortly after the rule went into place didn't support the roadless rule generally and specifically did not support its application to the Tongass. So in 2003, the Bush administration adopted what they called at that time a temporary exemption for the Tongass from the roadless rule nationally. And it was supposed to be temporary while they figured out what their long-term plan was going to be for dealing with roadless areas on the Tongass. But because that was never actually resolved, the temporary Tongass exemption became the de facto permanent rule. And we were seeing the Bush administration repeatedly focusing on trying to offer new timber sales, punching new roads into backcountry, pristine wild areas, and continuing that old practice of logging out the best, biggest old growth forest sands they could find. Um, we pushed back very hard on that with a lot of lawsuits in the early 2000s, um, trying to stop roadless area logging on the forest, and, and ultimately brought a legal challenge to the validity of that 2003 Tongass exemption. That challenge remains caught up in the courts right now. At this time, there's still an order in place that we won from the district court that the Tongass exemption was invalid. It was adopted on arbitrary grounds. And the roadless rule, as a result, remains in effect in the Tongass at this time. However, that question is now pending before an 11-judge panel on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and we're waiting for a ruling at this time, ultimately, as to the validity of that exemption. If we were to lose this case before this 11-judge panel in the Ninth Circuit, then the Tongass exemption would come back into place, and it would be permissible for the Forest Service to 
start offering timber sales in roadless areas again. They haven't tried to do that in quite a few years now. Um, I think they have recognized that it is immensely controversial for them to try to offer timber sales in roadless areas. It always causes them problems and they have shifted their focus recently away from that. But heaven knows we, we don't want to take our chances on that because so much of those kind of decisions can depend on who's the next president in office and who they appoint to run agencies like the Forest Service. And with the, with the old growth logging, what are they trying to log? And what are they doing with this old growth? Is it still being made into pulp or where is it going? Well, great question. Um, almost all of the logging on the Tongass nowadays or has always been now and always has been old growth stands. And we are the only national forest in the country that still logs a significant amount of commercial old growth. And in fact, uh, in the Tongass, as I say, it's almost entirely old growth that's being logged. Um, as to where it goes, half of the timber that's logged in the Tongass just gets cut and sent as round logs outside of the region. So uh, it gets exported to places in the lower 48 states or to Asia where it gets processed into wood products that would be used for some other purpose. So it's only about half of what is logged in the Tongass that actually stays here and gets some local processing that creates some, uh, a, a small number of local jobs at the sawmills in the region. And those, you know, they're made into things like door frames and window frames and lumber. What are the long-term ramifications on the ecosystem in the Tongass, you know, including the watersheds, the wildlife, indigenous way of life? What is, what is really being lost here by this resource extraction? Well, what's being lost is permanent and irreplaceable. These stands include trees that may be 700 years old or older sometimes. To, when you clear-cut uh, a stand of old-growth forest, it takes probably, it takes about 150 years 
before it begins to uh, get the values of an old growth forest again, and really at least 250 years or longer before it really has the full habitat value of the forest that you cut. Now, so that means that when we decide, when our generation decides that we're going to clear cut these old growth forests, we're making decisions that not only affect us and our children, but our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and our great-great-grandchildren. The impacts of this on fish and wildlife are substantial. Um, There are a lot of species that are associated with and dependent on the old-growth forests, but perhaps the one with maybe the most local significance here is, uh, believe it or not, deer. In southeast Alaska, the local species of deer called the Sitka black-tailed deer is highly dependent on old-growth forests. Um, And the reason for that is it's the old-growth forests where they go to survive over the winter. These old-growth forests have trees of varying sizes, which means you get a mixed canopy. It allows some sunshine to reach the forest floor, which means there's forage there that deer can feed on. But it also means that these great big trees, they have giant limbs and branches that intercept a lot of snow so that in a hard winter, the old growth forest stands are where the deer can go, that they're able to walk around and not be bogged down in snow and also able to find food. So they're uh, vitally important for deer populations in southeast Alaska. In turn, There is another species that depends a lot on the deer, which is our local subspecies of wolf called the Alexander Archipelago wolf. And the deer is the primary uh, species on which the wolf preys in southeast Alaska. Um, As a result of that, what we are now coming to grips with in this region after 50 years of logging much of the best habitat in the forest is a real conflict where there are not enough deer to go around, both for wolves and for human hunting demand. You know, the hunting of deer is very important to the local rural subsistence way of life in Southeast Alaska. It's what, it fills people's freezers with meat for the winter. Um, It's a part of local traditions. It's a part of the kind of self-reliant rural way of life here. And for the native communities, it's a, a part of a subsistence tradition that goes back for millennia. Um, So it's something tremendously important that's being lost here. And and moreover, as you build roads, uh, this whole network of roads to provide access to cut these stands of old growth, you're really changing the way that people relate to the land, where it used to be a system of getting access by boats to the shoreline. Now people start going out with their ATVs and 4x4s and driving the logging roads to get access. It provides more competition, draws more people from outside. So it's a fundamental change that's been wrought on the ecosystem and on the way that people live in the region. How active is the indigenous community in forest defense initiatives and what are the demands and tactics being used? Well, 
It's important to understand with the indigenous community here, the Alaska natives, the relationship to logging is uh, diverse and mixed. You know, there isn't a, a monolithic native community any more than there's a monolithic non-native community on the logging issues. And it tends to be uh, in the indigenous community divided between um, the tribes and the corporations. And I have to explain that a little bit. Um, the, the villages in the region each have a tribal government that's a federally recognized Indian tribe. And those tribal governments have been tremendous allies with conservation and fishing and tourism and other interests that have been trying to protect the ecosystems on the Tongass. I've represented, as a lawyer, I have represented several of these tribes over my 25 years working here, and it's been some of the very most rewarding work I've ever done. They're, they're trying to protect uh, places for subsistence hunting and fishing and gathering that are tremendously important to them culturally and that, uh, that are important to them economically as a food source and that are places that they have tremendously strong historical and cultural ties to for going back countless generations. So they've been uh, a really important part of trying to protect the old growth forests in the Tongass. On the other hand, the other thing that you should recognize though is that there are also native corporations in the region. Um, and the way that came about is that in 1970, Congress passed the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. The purpose of the Native Claims Settlement Act was to make way for the Alaska pipeline to be built. And Congress in that act tried a new experiment for a way of resolving native claims, which is instead of creating reservations and giving lands to tribes, what they did was they granted lands to native corporations so that the, the people who owned those lands were not tribal citizens, but were rather corporate shareholders. And that really changed the relationship of people to the land. So what, what we now have is people who are the shareholders in these corporations, they might live in Anchorage or Seattle or San Francisco or not necessarily in the community where the land is. And similarly, the people who live in those communities are often not shareholders. And so there's been this kind of separation of the people from the land on the native corporation lands. And those native corporation lands have been logged over at a very unsustainable pace, even worse than the Forest Service. So there's a mixture uh, how the Alaska Natives have related to the, to the forest in southeast Alaska. Um, so kind of zooming out a bit, how is climate change affecting the Tongass National Forest? Well, it's, it's a little hard to say in the long term or big picture, but one thing that, that has been noticed for sure is that it appears to be causing the decline of one of the really valuable tree species here, Alaska yellow cedar. Uh, what happens is as a result of climate change, we're getting less snowpack than we used to. And that diminished snowpack, ironically, is actually causing those trees sometimes to freeze in the springtime when they should uh, historically have had good thermal cover from that snow that would protect them, they're, uh, they don't have that anymore and they're, they're dying back. There's been a uh, petition actually to list the Alaska yellow cedar as a threatened or endangered species as a result of this dieback. 
Um, but in the long term, it's a little hard to say what the, what the impacts of climate change will be on the Tongass. One thing you should know about the Tongass relating to climate change, though, is because it's, it's such a lush forested ecosystem, this temperate rainforest, it stores a vast amount of carbon. And so one of the effects of logging old growth forests on the Tongass is it actually is contributes to climate change. And by protecting these old growth forests, we can actually help preserve a, a kind of buffer against climate change. And because of the latitude and the Pacific Ocean influence, do you think the Tongass could be a lifeboat for biodiversity in the event of significant warming? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, you always want to try to, to save all the pieces. <laughs> and that, that's what we're trying to do here is trying to protect as much as we can of the remaining roadless areas and of the old growth forests and allow uh, places where you'll have refugia that species can adapt as climate changes. It's actually a pretty challenging place for adaptation because it is a naturally a very fragmented island ecosystem. Uh, it's not a real easy place for uh, wildlife to migrate through. And are there any restoration projects going on to help repair the existing ecological damage? Yes, um, there's, uh, and hopefully more, hopefully a growing amount of this kind of restoration work. There's a uh, a, a fair amount of stream restoration work that can be done um, and uh, can do things like uh, restore natural pools that would have occurred from trees. You know, they used to believe that trees in the streams were a very bad thing and they would actually clear them out of the streams. But we now know that trees in the streams are a good thing. They create pools, they provide woody debris. Um, they're essential for salmon habitat, for salmon spawning and rearing. Um, and so there are restoration projects going on trying to restore streams that have been diverted by roads, trying to uh, replace uh, culverts that have collapsed and are blocking uh, stream flow. Uh, there are trying to restore restore natural stream beds and actually putting trees back in streams where they were cleared out in the past. Um, in addition to the stream restoration, there are attempts to try to improve the wildlife habitat from the clear cutting of old growth in the past. Now, there's really very little that can be done here. Um, but there are efforts to try to thin those second growth stands to do something to restore a little bit more of diversity of tree size to the stand. Now, there's only so much you can do there. As a practical matter, it takes hundreds of years for those stands to come back. And the, there is not really good scientific evidence to support the efficacy of thinning those second growth stands to try to nudge along old growth conditions a little bit. But there are studies underway on the impact of that. And uh, there are efforts to try to thin the existing stands in the hopes of being able to improve that habitat a little bit. Oh, where have you been? My blue-eyed son 
And where have you been, my darling young one? I've stumbled on the side of twelve misty mountains I've walked and I crawled on six crooked highways I've stepped in the middle of seven side forests I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans I've been ten thousand miles in the mouth of a graveyard And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rain that's gonna fall Oh, what did you see, my blue-eyed son? And what did you see, my darling young one? I saw a newborn baby with wild wolves all around it I saw a highway of diamonds with nobody on it I saw a black branch with blood that kept dripping So a room full of men with their hammers a-bleeding I saw a white ladder all covered with water I saw ten thousand talkers whose tongues were all broken I saw guns and sharp swords in the hands of young children And it's a hard, it's a hard It's a hard, and it's a hard, it's a hard rain. So what are the objectives of the Earth Justice Tongas campaign now? And if you could give us an idea of what's happening, I, I think I read something like 6,000 acres old growth are up for logging. I'll say as to our objectives, it's, it's really two things. Um, First, it's protecting the roadless areas of the forest. And we've been largely successful with that part of the effort. Uh, we, we, it's, it's been quite a few years now since the Forest Service successfully pushed through a timber sale that would build new roads into these pristine backcountry roadless areas. That's, that's been an immensely successful public advocacy campaign and litigation campaign. Um, we're hopeful that we'll win this lawsuit in the Ninth Circuit that will help cement in that permanent protection of roadless areas. But even without that, I I would be very hopeful that we would continue to be able to influence the Forest Service not to try to be building more timber sales out into roadless areas again. The other objective that we're focusing on, and this one is the one where we really need to make a lot more progress, is to end this practice of commercial large-scale old growth logging. We're the only national forest that's still doing large-scale old growth logging to any significant degree. It's an incredibly rare and valuable resource. It's an anachronistic, outdated practice that needs to end. And we are trying to urge the Forest Service to make a rapid transition 
away from old growth logging. The Forest Service is engaged in a process that I can tell you more about if you like, uh, in which they express a goal of making a transition away from old growth logging, but it's much too slow and with much too much damage being done in the meantime. Yeah, I would love to hear more about the Forest Service policy and inner workings and how, you know, the Forest Service is even allowed to still commercially log old growth when we have so little left worldwide? <laughs> yeah, good question. There's no law against it. But uh, so the Forest Service in 2010, when the Obama administration was relatively new in office, the Forest Service came out with a new policy that they announced. It was May of 2010. And they announced that they wanted to make a rapid transition away from logging in roadless areas and away from logging old growth forests on the Tongass. And this was just tremendously exciting. I can hardly convey to you. I've been working on these issues for 25 years in this field. And that was the first time that I ever heard the Forest Service announce a really forward-looking policy. Historically, what they're always trying to do is look backwards and try to restore the timber industry back to the glory of its old days rather than looking ahead and thinking about a different way of, uh, of managing the forest in this region. It was a policy that would focus on some of the real economic strengths of this region like fishing and tourism which employ many, many, many more times uh, than the timber industry does. So, so we were really excited about this idea that the Forest Service would make a rapid transition out of old growth logging. And the problem is that it has not been implemented in that way in the subsequent years since 2010. They continue to offer a timber sale program that's almost entirely old growth forest. And in fact, they uh, last year offered a timber sale called the Big Thorn Timber Sale. That is the biggest timber sale not only the biggest old growth sale, but the biggest timber sale of any kind anywhere in the national forest system for over 20 years, as far as we can tell. Um, and it's almost entirely old growth. So the idea of offering the biggest old growth timber sale in 20 years is just completely incompatible with the rhetoric of making a rapid transition away from old growth logging. So we're doing what we can to try to urge the Forest Service to make a faster transition. There's a planning process underway right now. We expect to see a draft environmental impact statement come out this summer on a plan amendment that would provide for a transition away from old growth logging on the Tongass. We're concerned that right now they're thinking about that in much too long terms. They're thinking about it in 10 to 15 years. It needs to happen faster than that. Uh, we're hopeful that there will be alternatives that would enable it to happen faster and that we can get the public involved in fighting for a truly rapid transition out of this practice of old growth logging. And when would they actually start logging and how long would it take them to log the 6,000 acres? Well, I, I'm sorry to say that they were scheduled to start logging it on April 18th of this year. We filed a lawsuit uh, trying to stop that timber sale. 
we lost the lawsuit in the district court. We've appealed it to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. We sought an injunction pending appeal, but we were not successful in obtaining that. And so, as far as I know, the logging on that project has already started. Now, it is a big project. They're thinking of it as lasting as long as 10 years. So, this summer, there will only be a portion of that that will be logged. Uh, there will still be plenty left to protect. So, we're going to fight on in the lawsuit. Um, the thing that we lost this spring was really just a short-term injunction for the period pending our work on the appeal of the case. We didn't get that, but we're moving forward with getting the appeal resolved on the merits and hopefully getting that sale set aside so that the next nine years worth of logging don't happen there. How much can this 6,000 acres really be worth compared to what we're losing in terms of not just the majestic beauty and ecosystem services that old growth provides, but the wildlife, the tourism, the local communities that are losing money off these sales. It's just, it's kind of mind-blowing how this could have even been passed when it just yeah. doesn't seem to add up. You're right. It doesn't add up financially. I'll, I'll, I'll say a couple things about that. But first about the environmental effects of this. The timber sale is located right in the heart of what had in the past been the best habitat and population stronghold of wolves in southeast Alaska. It so happens in a very bad luck way for the wolves that their habitat is located largely right where the most valuable trees on the Tongass are. And this sale is on a place called Prince of Wales Island, which is the biggest island in southeast Alaska. It's the fourth biggest island in the entire United States. But the population numbers of wolves on that island have decreased dramatically. It's been a place that has been very heavily logged in the past. There's been a tremendous amount of habitat loss. And the best experts on the subject are saying that this species is right at the brink of being able to be viable on Prince of Wales Island and, and in southeast Alaska generally. In fact, the Fish and Wildlife Service is considering a petition now to list the wolf as a threatened or endangered species. And that has been the main focus of our lawsuit against the Big Thorn sale. As to the economics of it, you're absolutely right. The timber industry associated with the Tongass timber sale program only employs about 100 people by the Forest Service's own reckoning. That's people who work in the sawmills in the region and loggers who cut the trees. Only about 100 people. In contrast, there are over 10,000 workers associated with fishing and tourism in Southeast Alaska. So it's a much, much more important part of the local economy. And it doesn't make any sense to be damaging the ecosystem with a hugely subsidized timber industry in, or, in order to prop up this very weak industry that employs very few people while damaging the very resource that our economic strongholds depend on. The timber industry in the Tongass timber sale program is heavily subsidized, 20 some million dollars per year to American taxpayers. And for that timber sale program, the Forest Service receives in revenues only maybe about a million dollars a year. 
Um, so we're spending $20 million a year to get receipts of maybe a million dollars on selling the timber. That's a terrible deal for taxpayers, and it doesn't even make any sense when you try to attach a value to the jobs are created that are created from that. If you do the division, it works out to more than $200,000 per job created is what that program costs the American taxpayers. It would be cheaper for the American taxpayers if we just cut a check to every logger and every mill worker for their annual salary and left the trees standing. Now, nobody's proposing we do that. It would be crazy. But the fact that that's true demonstrates the, the craziness of the timber sale program on the Tongass. So what is pushing this through? Why? I mean, is there an answer to why this is continuing to happen? I mean, what is the power play here? Well, I, I think it's a certain kind of Paul Bunyan mentality. You know, there was at one time the timber industry was a much bigger player in the economy of Southeast Alaska. I think there's still a kind of association with that as being part of the cultural and economic history of the region that we have a logging industry. After all, you look around and you see all these trees. So the, the political establishment in Alaska continues to largely favor the timber sale program, uh, despite the fact that when you look at the economics of it, it really just doesn't make much sense. And Congress keeps appropriating the money every year for this timber sale program, and that's why it keeps happening. I've been here 25 years, and I have seen a substantial shift in public opinion over that time away from logging and in favor of protecting what we've got left in the area. But I think there's a time lag that occurs before that shift in thinking really takes hold in the way that the politicians make their decisions about managing these resources. Yeah, and I think the last uh, statistic I read was there was less than 2% of all old growth forest worldwide left. So when something like this is up on the chopping block, it it is really, truly unbelievable, especially when the economics don't match up. I never felt magic crazy this. I never saw moons knew the meaning of the sea. I never held emotion in the palm of my hand I felt sweet breezes in the top of a tree But now you're here Bright in my northern sky I've been a long time but I'm waiting Been a long time that I'm blown. I've been a long time that I've wandered. But through the people I have known, oh, if you would and you could, straighten my new mind's eye.
I'm wondering what type of activism has been going on up there? Has there been direct action? Has I know you've been talking about litigation. We work very closely with several other mostly conservation-related organizations in trying to protect the resources here, and they include local groups like the Southeast Alaska Conservation Council, as well as national groups like the Natural Resources Defense Council, Trout Unlimited, the National Audubon Society, and others. Um, Greenpeace, uh, Center for Biological Diversity, Sierra Club has played an important role. So there's quite a lot of organizations. We try to work closely with local communities where we can. We've got uh, native villages, tribal governments as, as allies on many of these issues. There's a, a good coalition of, of folks working together on this. There's been very little in the way of direct action in response to your question about that. Um, there has been a little bit, but it has not been a focus of the advocacy up here. Um, there has been a litigation campaign that we've talked about. But mostly right now, we've got organizations trying to engage in this public process that's underway on the Congress right now that I mentioned before. They're actively working on a plan amendment process with the stated purpose of hastening the transition away from old growth logging. And, uh, and as long as there's a public process like that, the best thing we can do is try to influence that process uh, to get it to come out with the best possible result. And that means trying to get the word out by me talking to people like you. <laughs> and it means uh, communicating with the decision makers locally and in Washington, D.C. And it means trying to get people to send in letters and petitions. And we're doing what we can with the resources we have available to try to steer this process in the right direction. Um, and one question I forgot to mention when you were speaking about the wolves, if the wolves were to be deemed endangered, would that prevent logging from going on in their habitat? Well, it would not necessarily cause an immediate halt to all logging, but it certainly would require the Forest Service to adopt a plan that the Fish and Wildlife Service could say was consistent with um, the recovery, the, the protection and recovery of the species. So it would certainly, as a practical matter, have to require reduced old growth logging in the Tongass because it's that old growth logging is fundamentally at the root of the habitat problem for the wolves. Right, and I know down here in California, if you have the northern spotted owl in your forest, you know, you can't log the surrounding area. So I wasn't sure if maybe that worked in the same way as a wolf, although obviously they're different creatures with different patterns of movement. Yeah, and then, and then of course the spotted owl helped uh, precipitate the transition away from old growth logging in the Pacific Northwest. Um, you know, I hope that we don't have to have uh, an endangered wolf that's so perilously close to uh, losing its viability that it has to be listed under the act in order to, to stop old growth logging. You know, it, 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 it probably does need to be listed, but the best thing would be to protect the forest and the habitat that it has for the protection of the local uses and the, the, 
the the resource in in its own right. It's it's too bad that we have to have endangered species petitions to finally bring about more sensible management of these resources. Yeah, absolutely. So moving away from the Tongass for a minute, uh, what are some other environmental campaigns that are going on in Alaska that Earth Justice is a part of, whether that's pebble mine or Arctic drilling or um, overfishing, mining, etc.? We're doing all those things. We are working to try to prevent the development of the pebble mine. That is, would be the largest open pit in North America. It'd be just a massive copper mine developed in southwest Alaska in the very richest salmon habitat probably in the world. Certainly the world's largest sockeye salmon runs and a billion dollar fishing industry. It's uh, tremendously important there, both for the subsistence way of life for the folks who live in that region and, and an incredibly important economic resource in the salmon fishery there in, in uh, Bristol Bay in southwest Alaska. We are working to fight oil drilling in the Arctic. Arctic oil drilling is just an incredibly risky thing to do. You're putting oil rigs out there in an ocean that is covered with sea ice most of the year if they ever had an oil spill there, it would be a catastrophe that could never be cleaned up adequately. You've got sea ice, you've got, um, uh, when, when it is open enough even to, to drill up there, you have high seas, you have storms, you have diminishing daylight hours as you get on towards winter, um, and you have a place where there's no infrastructure available to address an oil spill. If you think about the Deepwater Horizon spill in the Gulf of Mexico, well, that occurred in a place where there is a tremendously well-developed oil in- industry and all the infrastructure associated with it in an area with lots of ports and ships and population of uh, people who lived there and the resources on hand to try to clean up an oil spill, and they couldn't do it there. If they couldn't do it in the deep water horizon, they'd never be able to do it in the Arctic Ocean. And moreover, it's just the wrong direction for us to go. It's energy policy. Instead of trying to pursue more fossil fuels in these remote, difficult-to-get-at places like the Arctic, we need to be making the shift to a clean energy economy. Third, uh, you mentioned fishing. We're working on uh, issues in the North Pacific, trying to protect marine mammals and the stellar sea lion in in particular from uh, fishing by the industrial trawl fishery in the region. um, That fishery takes billions of pounds of fish out of the ocean, and we've got a stellar sea lion population that's endangered in the western part of the state and is on the decline and we're trying to protect that species and also trying to reduce bycatch of salmon and halibut on the industrial trawl fleet bycatch is the you know the incidental catch of species that they're not actually targeting and we lose a lot of valuable salmon and halibut that way through that uh, incidental bycatch when they're targeting other species we're also working in Alaska fighting coal mining as well. Um, Alaska has a huge, has probably half of the coal resources in the United States and, uh, and a substantial part of the world's coal resources. The great majority of it is undeveloped at this point, but there are several projects proposed out there to try to develop these coal resources. 
coal mining causes a terrible impact on the environment in the way of water pollution and disruption of the incredibly valuable salmon resources that we have here in Alaska. And again, as with drilling in the Arctic, it's just the wrong direction for our country to be taking to be developing more fossil fuel resources. And we're doing what we can here to try to keep the coal in the ground. Well, I really can't thank you enough and Earth Justice for taking on these huge issues that affect all of us, even if we're not in Alaska. And I know that the Unlearn and Rewild audience will be pumped up after this conversation to get involved. So what can the public do beyond signing petitions? But of course, that's important as well to, you know, to stand in defense of the Tongass, which is this global heritage site and beyond. It's a great time to be asking that question because there actually is a process underway on the Tongass in which we have an opportunity to try to influence the agency and the Obama administration to to make a legacy decision here to finally get us out of this anachronistic practice of, of old growth logging. Write letters to the chief of the Forest Service or the secretary of agriculture asking to stop logging on the Tongass participate in the process when there's a public comment period coming up. We'll be having a draft EIS coming out this summer and there'll be a chance for the public to weigh in on that. Spread the word. Tell people. uh, Talk to local organizations that are involved in conservation issues. Let's get the word out and see if we can make this happen uh, within the next couple years here as the Forest Service completes this process. Thank you, Tom, and I am completely behind this project, and I know the audience will be as well, so we'll be fighting beside you in this. Thank you very much. I sure appreciate your support. That was Tom Waldo of Earth Justice in Southeast Alaska. On behalf of the Tongass Old Growth, I'm Ayana Young. Thank you for joining us, and thanks to our producer, March Young. We heard Ambarchi O'Malley Dunn with an instrumental called Sometimes, then Bob Dylan doing A Hard Rain's a Gonna Fall, and Nick Drake singing Northern Sky. Our theme song is Like a River by Kate Wolf. Thank you for your loving attention and your action for the Tongass. Mm-hmm.